Heavenly Father, it's good to be together on this uh, rather a bit of an edge of a new year. We thank you for time to consider and contemplate the truths found in your word. This is a gift to us. Not everybody can do this. There are places in this world where what we do on Sunday mornings cannot be done legally. We're grateful. Lord, it, it's just been good to reconnect for a few minutes this morning, to see one another, to wish one another Happy New Year. We're grateful for this church and all the wonderful things that are going on here. And we pray now that you'd use our visit together today to encourage us, to cause us to go a little bit further down the road towards spiritual maturity, to embrace the needs and the relationship of one another, and to celebrate your presence in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalm 96. Let me set it up this way. A few years back, I uh, was channel surfing on, as I recall, it might have been a Sunday night, and I came across a, a series that just began to enthrall me, so I, so I put it on the DVR, eventually actually um, bought the series because I, I had missed part of it, didn't know it was on, and um, I wanted to be sure to get it from the beginning. I have be and, I, and since then, I've become a great fan of Ken Burns. You know the name? Um, uh, Ken is a, is a kind of a, uh, um, what would you call him? Um, a chronicler. I mean, he, he's just good at giving pieces of history. He did a thing this last year on Jackie Robinson that was really good. Um, but this one was on the national parks. And, um, and I realized, so Rhonda and I were sitting there watching part of this one evening, and I said, have you been to the national parks? And both of us recognized that neither of us really had been. I mean, maybe kind of through or glancing by. You know, I remember on my way somewhere, I looked down from an airplane and saw the Grand Canyon. Okay, there it is. And I mean, that's as close as I've gotten to that particular one. But we kind of said, okay, part of the bucket list is try to get to a few of these. And we started kind of clicking off the list. So, well, uh, that first summer after that, we got an opportunity to go to, um, to um, um, kind of did this one week thing in Yellowstone and, and, and that was just a great start to this uh, prospect, pro project kind of. Well, uh, along the way, okay, from where we were staying in Jackson to uh, into the park, you know, if you've been up there, you go to the Tetons kind of between the two. Am I right? And I've got my, okay. Uh, okay, so you, uh, there to the west. I knew you could keep me straight on that. Um, and I, I just remember thinking, uh, this is incredible. So we stopped, as I recall, did a little picnic lunch thing somewhere. And um, we've been reading about it. You know, when I do stuff like this, I buy books and start reading about, okay, what's going on and what to make sure to see. And, and we went, there was a line of, of enormous trees uh, rimming a lake. You couldn't see the lake till you got parked actually in a parking lot. There were tour buses there and that kind of thing. This place called Jenny Lake. And 
I'm thinking, it just sounds just kind of quaint. I had no idea what I was going to find when I went on the other side of that tree line. It was a, it was a bright, uh, cool morning, although in the summertime, not cool like this morning, but very cool that morning. And he walked through in this vista that was laid out before me. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen anything quite like that in my lifetime. Um, uh, for a moment, you felt like, am I really here or am I in Switzerland or somewhere? I mean, it was just all these pictures that you've seen through your life. And I recognize uh, that there are some times in our lives where we see something or encounter something or even experience something that God has been involved in that are just border on indescribable. I wish I could describe this day to you. I wish that I were a painter where I could paint the picture. I can't do that. I can only paint word pictures. But there are events in our lives and there are pictures in our lives that are just border on indescribable. At one point, while taking in that view, we looked at each other and said, this is unbelievable. Now, it was time in that moment to take that opportunity to notice what God had been doing and to stop and praise him for it. Actually, as a couple of people who, she's a really good singer, I'm kind of an ex-singer. It might have been a good moment to stop and sing to him. How great thou art. Now, so we're going to look at a few of the Psalms over the next few weeks, which are uh, moments of... Um, pure praise. and Many of them are written by David. They're not all written by David. In fact, the one that we're in today is not marked whether or not it's Davidic. But there's 150 of them in your Bible. And um, they're commonly seen in terms of five books. They're collections, five books of them. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking at your Bible, I'll check this out to make sure this is right. But in, in your Bible, if you look at Psalm 1 and 42 and 73 and 90 and 107, you'll see book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, book 5. There are kind of five books that are separated there. And you'll see just a little, in most of our Bibles, you'll see a little delineation over uh, before, for instance, uh, Psalm 90, that'll say book 3 or book 4. Now, Psalm 96 that we're going to study today falls in that book, in book 4, where it's a part of a subgroup. There's another group within this group in book 4. That's Psalm 93 and Psalm 96 through 99. They're called enthronement psalms. Now let me tell you what an enthronement psalm is about. Enthronement psalms are seen to provide, it, to, to provide an answer to the problem that the ancient Hebrew people had when they were carted off to captivity in uh, Babylon. They then began to think, well, what in the world happened to, the, to David's throne? Is that going to come back someday? What happened to the kingdom now that we've been carted off somewhere else? And so they begin to ask in these Psalms, they begin to state this problem or ask this question. Um, why has David's dynasty been suspended, if not outright destroyed in this defeat? And so the psalmist cry out, 
in, in like 89, they, at the end of 89, they cry out, How long, O Lord? And as book four dawns, it provides the answer. And it's going to provide the answer for us in Psalm 96. God's answer to how long is the Lord reigns. Don't you love that answer? I think it was interesting when Abraham got up every morning and had his post-toasties. They were kosher, by the way. <laughs> had his post-toasties in the morning and he said, uh, where are we going today, God? God said, I am. Maybe you didn't understand my question, Lord. I said, where? And God answered, me. The people in, in, in these post-exilic days are asking, where is the throne? Where is the kingdom? Will we ever be returned to our former glory? And God's answer is, remember that I reign. It's kind of where this is going. Now, Steve Blair, you're mic'd up over there, I think. Would you start us in 96 and read the first uh, six verses, if you would please. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Here's the idea. There is the idea of urgency. It's time to get this done. And my question is, do I often have in my life an urgency about calling out to God, crying out to God, singing to God, praises? extolling him. We're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about some other verbs here in a little bit. Do I have an urgency in my life about giving him credit for the things he does? Do I have an urgency in my life about lifting him up? The word praise comes to mind here. Talking about his virtues, the things he has done, not just for me, but in general. Now, our mistake here is I think when we th hear Psalm 96, 1, we want to think that God is talking about, um, and by the way, in context of, uh, you know, we live in a church where they sing out of hymn books over here, and we sing uh, off of the screen in here and in here, and this one's not the same as this one, and neither one of them are anywhere. Okay, so we live in a context of in the middle of a world who's having a lot of kind of, wrangling over the new song, okay? Um, I've got my own opinions about those kinds of things, and I think all in all three places there are wonderful things going on. But I think we mistakenly sometimes think what God is talking about here is that we've got to sing new music. That's not at all what's being talked about here. Nothing wrong with that, Okay? But it's not talking about a new tune. It doesn't say sing a new tune. 
It doesn't say, uh, come up with a new song. What it's saying here, more particularly in context, is you need to sing a song to God that renews you. I don't think it could be more critical. I went through a period of time where um, I was um, not even listening to a whole lot of music. And if you know me, that's really funny. I, literally, my radio in my car was, was uh, news talk all the time or sports talk, both of which have a tendency to depress me. <laughs> and I, I wasn't even listening to a lot of music. Uh, and this went on for months after month after month after month. This is not recently, this is a while back. And I noticed even this week how refreshing it is to get back to my musical roots. It's important to me to be surrounded with wonderful sound. Always has been. But I lost that for a while. Because what I recognize is that singing a song to God renews me. Now, do we sing songs to God because he needs it? It's a tricky question. God doesn't need anything. Are you aware of that? He really doesn't need anything. You know, his Christmas list is really short. Okay? Doesn't need anything. But he loves it when you praise him. And he loves it when you live in this context of singing to him. So, okay, now uh, you might say, and I'm not going to pick anybody out uh, to ridicule here, Walt Northcutt, but um, you might say, I'm not really much of a singer. Now, I don't know, Walt may sing like a bird. I don't know. Like a crow. Okay, yeah. It, my ability to sing is not the issue. It has nothing to do with it. It is the fact that I'm commanded in lots of places, three times in one verse here, to sing a song to God. And that song will be renewing to me. Years ago, uh, we lost a fella here who by the time we lost him, he was in his 90s. Um, and he had become kind of a mascot of the church. His name was George Reed. Anybody remember George Reed? Kind of a little slight guy that was raised Roman Catholic, um, had been a Roman Catholic kind of all of his life. In the old Belle Isle days, George Reed used to come in the back door. Um, his, his daughter Georgia was here, and uh, he would come in uh, the back. He was a widow, widower, and he'd come in the back door of the narthex to meet her for lunch on Sundays. And it was funny how he started coming earlier and earlier and earlier. He'd meet her at the end of the service and they'd go to lunch. And then he'd come five minutes earlier, kind of hang out in the narthex and listen to what's going on. It was just, it was just wonderful to watch. He started coming to Wednesday night dinners and, uh, and then George made the move with us over to this place. By that time, he had uh, surrendered his life to Christ on the day he was baptized here. George, um, George, um, uh, he, he did a lot of volunteering around here. He'd, he'd like fill all the pew bags. He'd spend a day, a week, filling all the 
little prayer cards and pens and stuff in the pew backs. And, uh, you know, was just, he was around here a lot uh, once all that happened. George, for those of you who know the, some of the rest of the story, George was brutally murdered. And uh, um, just somebody broke in his apartment and he was murdered. It was a horrible, horrible thing for his family and for our church. But here's my, I don't remember, when I think of George, I don't think of that, even though it was horrible. When I think of George Reed, what I think of is George sitting about five or six pews back, right in the middle of the sanctuary, and he had a headset on because he couldn't hear very well, singing his little head off. My guess is it wasn't all that pretty. Remember, he was, he was raised Roman Catholic, probably didn't know the songs that George Cram said was leading us in in those days, but he was learning them. And I just thought, you know, if anybody here's got an excuse to not make a joyful noise, it's probably George Reed. And yet he was. Because singing to God is renewing. So, I just want to challenge you. At the edge of this new year, are you singing a new song? Is there a new song in your heart? There ought to be. Now, Okay, that was all verse one, all right? We may not get very far today at all, all right? Look at verse two. Let me read it to you again. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good things of his salvation from day to day. We are commanded here not just to sing, but to proclaim his salvation. Uh, Over in Acts 20, Paul in one of those uh, verses that I think is kind of his life mission verse says, you know what? My life is worth nothing unless I use it to proclaim his mighty acts and his mighty love. He said, that's just who I am. Um, My life is not worth anything if I don't proclaim him. So the idea here is we're commanded to proclaim his salvation day after day, it says. Now, um, the question is, how do I do that? And if I'm told to do it every day, then what do I do? Now, let me say a couple of things about this. There are two things that I think are implied here in um, telling his salvation. First of all, the easiest thing for me to tell about God is my story, what he's done to me, for me. And that's really, really easy, I think. Do you? To tell This is not a deal where you've got to memorize some huge gospel presentation or the Romans road or, you know, Ralph, you and I have talked about that, how uh, those are are good things. But this is not talking about that. If I'm going to proclaim his salvation day after day, what I need to talk about first and the easiest part of this is what has he done for me? That's actually quite easy. What's he done for me? So telling my story is where it begins. And then to the point that I can tell his story at Christmas time. Why are we doing what we're doing? Well, that gives you an opportunity to tell some of his story. Because I believe in this story of Christmas. So that's kind of the idea. And then it says to do it day after day, every day. Because praise draws people. Verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the people. God often reveals his glory by doing 
what only he can do. And you and I get to sit back and watch it. Take a, a trip to the left. Go to chapter 19, Psalm 19. Somebody just lift your voice. Cindy, you've got a mic there. Read 19.1. Would you do that? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Okay. So the idea here is that um, his glory is revealed by doing what only he can do, certainly here in creation, but in other things as well. How do I lift him up on a daily basis. I read a story this week about during the early 1990s after the fall of um, the Soviet Union, there was a flood of missionaries that went into the uh, Ukraine and the former Soviet republics. And uh, upon their arrival, the missionaries found churches that had met securely during the communist era, era um, when being caught at such gatherings or even talking about the gospel could put somebody, could get you landed in a Siberian work camp. As a result, the Ukrainian Christians didn't have much experience in evangelism. They didn't know how to reach out to other people. To compound that problem, many of the short-term missionaries didn't speak a whole lot of Russian, and therefore they had trouble communicating the gospel in any depth at all. So the leaders of the church in the Ukraine suggested this solution. They said, you Americans know songs that we don't know. Let's put them into Russian and we'll just sing them out loud in front of people. And so finding that idea agreeable, the missionaries learned Russian words to familiar praise songs and they proceeded to kind of sing them in public. Anytime they were out in public, a bunch of them together would just kind of start singing praise songs. The Ukrainian Christians who accompanied those kind of American singers would talk with people who'd say, what is going on here? Since they could speak the language, they would talk to the people who would kind of show up and say, what's going on here? Many attended uh, revival meetings uh, as a result of kind of inviting them to church. Many of them came to faith, all because of some Americans who learned a little bit of Russian to sing a song that they already knew in a different language. So think about it. Songs were sung in imperfect Russian by Americans who barely knew that language sparked a harvest for Christ and his kingdom. What's the lesson that I can learn here? My question to you would be, what song are you singing? In my Bible, the word God's that is translated there is a small g. Great is the Lord, capital L, Actually, all caps, and greatly to be praised, he's to be feared above all gods. Now, why should we praise him? That question is answered here because he's great. And in our English Bibles, this word is used often. In fact, it's used 240 times uh, in uh, our English Bibles. This word that is a similar word to the word that's translated Lord in verse 4, but it's the word gods, and it's a small g. Small letter G, gods. You notice that? In our English Bibles, that occurs in there a lot. And it's, it can only be determined by put, being put in context. Because what it's talking about, is, and the word that kind of goes in your blank here, is he's talking about here 
that God is to be worshipped and honored above all of what I would call hypothetical gods. Hypothetical gods. Cindy, can I get you to run over to Jeremiah 2 and read verse 11? Jeremiah's going to deal with this a little bit. Jeremiah 2, 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. The, the prophets speak a lot about this. Why should we praise him? Because he's great. Contrasted with those that the peoples around them worship, they're not gods at all, Jeremiah says. That thought about them being gods is just used more or less hypothetically. And so, he makes a statement here in verse 5. Let's go on to it. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The idea here is reminding us that throughout human history, ever since man began to draw breath, he has worshipped someone or something. Worship is part of uh, everybody's life in some ways and has been throughout, throughout human history. Man has always worshipped either someone or something. Uh, Paul, over in Acts 17, begins to be frustrated about, uh, he's in Athens, and he's kind of taken a little, he's, he's on a, it's not really a vacation, he never took a vacation, but he's over there waiting on his entourage to join him there, and he begins to look around, and he sees an idol here, and a, and a shrine here, and some kind of a temple over here, and they're all the different gods, and it just makes him scratch his head. You remember, he was raised with, uh, with Deuteronomy 6.4 on his lips. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so as he began to walk through this very cosmopolitan city, this very uh, sophisticated city of Athens, he begins to scratch his head over all of the competing gods in that place. And eventually in Acts 17, he addresses the people gathered there and presents to them One of their shrines is built to an unknown God, and he lets them know about that. But the statement reminds us here that throughout history, mankind has worshipped someone. But Paul's, uh, the psalmist's contrast, as is Paul, is there is a God who creates. He's the only one who does. We came home last night just a little bit after, uh, after uh, uh, nightfall. And um, Rhonda was taking a nap, and she woke up and began to notice sunset. We were going west. Looking directly into the sunset. I forgot my shades, and so much of that, I had you know, this thing going on through the afternoon through the late afternoon. But as we got close to Oklahoma City, it was like God had painted me a painting. I'm, I'm not, you know, you ever go, to, if you ever go to the Cowboy Hall of Fame, you know those huge murals in the big room there and, and they've got that wonderful orange and pink and peach. As, as wonderful as that stuff is, it doesn't capture what God can do. The purples and the oranges and the reds and the, kind of peach colors. It, it was an amazing display yesterday. By the way, 
we're very fortunate to get a lot of great sunsets here, but none better than when it's been really cold. Have you noticed that? Is that just me? When it's really cold, sunset is incredibly beautiful. That's what he creates. He painted that picture for you. The gods of the nations are idols. But remember, the psalmist says, that he is the one who created. He's the one who made it all. And I ought to respond to him or praise him accordingly. And then in verse 6, he begins to just talk about attributes. Look at these attributes that are here in 6. Splendor. Majesty. We ought to worship him because of those attributes. Splendor and majesty. Strength. Beauty. All of those right there in his sanctuary. Tell about him. Tell what he's like. So I want to ask one more singing question. Not just, are you singing a new song? What's your song saying? But to whom are you singing? Are you just singing to the only one who deserves my praise? That's my challenge to you. Okay, let's, let's go a little bit further. Cindy, I'm going to just let you hang in with the, with the mic, if you will, and read 7, 8, and 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Go with me. Uh, back just a little ways to 29, 1 and 2. There's a word here we've got to come to terms with. It's the word ascribe, mentioned here in this, uh, this seventh verse that Cindy read. Let's go to 29. Look at the first couple of verses of 29. Ascribe, see it again? To the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. So we see this word ascribe. It's not a word that I have used recently in in the modern speech of you. Now, you are really smart people. Maybe you use the word ascribe, but I haven't used it in a long time. What does it mean here to ascribe these things to God? Well, and, and by the way, it must be important because like the tripled command in verse 1 to sing, 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 this one is ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. See, that's what must be kind of important, this command. What do you think it means? Give? Say it again. Literally, to give? So to give him what? Huh? Credit. Oh, that's good. Boy, you guys ought to stick together. You're, you're a dynamite team here. To give him credit. To give him credit. To um, uh, One technical definition says something like um, to lay to the account of or to attribute to. To give him credit. To give credit where credit's due. Isn't it interesting that, that in our world, we have a tendency to want to take credit for things that are not really our doing. Instead here, we ought, to, we ought to discipline ourselves to give him appropriate credit. It's a command here. To give him credit for those things. And then it says in verse 8, that as I'm doing that, I ought to back that up with an offering. Years ago... Remember the old uh, bumper sticker, uh, honk if you love Jesus? 
Marty would love this one. I saw one years ago, only one time. It said, if you love Jesus, tithe. Anybody can honk. I'll let you do what you will with that. And then verse 9. It's just beautiful here. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Then in verse 9, worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him, all the earth. The idea here is that uh, the word holiness is used there, the word holy. Holiness is the necessary uh, element here. Both God's holiness and ours. Our disposition is to be holy, for he is. Now, go with me over to 1 Peter 1. You got your Bible. You're going to go almost to the end of your Bible. Turn left from the book of Revelation. Between James and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the little letter of 1st Peter. Listen to what Peter says here. I think this is interesting. But, so I'm going to read verse 15 to 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all of your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy quote from Leviticus. Now, uh, the idea here is is that our disposition is to be like his. Yes, God is holy, and in that he might seem unapproachable to you, but he's not. He calls us to be like him. And my life desire, my life's project is to live in such a way and to grow in such a way year by year by beginning of another year to being more and more and more conformed to the image of his son and to praise him in that way. Now, I want to read a couple more verses and then we'll quit. Let's go down to verse 10. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that's in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming and he's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, here's the deal. We are to declare our praise that the Lord rules. Uh, This chapter begins with sing. Then the next paragraph tells us to ascribe or to attribute to. Now it's saying, say this. Say the Lord reigns or the Lord rules. And it begins to give us this little picture. Roger, I thought of you when I was studying this earlier this morning. It gives us this little picture of the, all the creatures in the sea or the pond and all the creatures in the field, okay? I've got a nephew who is a, who's a hunter and I was talking to him yesterday. All those creatures, he says here that all those creatures are looking forward to his return when everything will be judged and it will be right. The fishes in the sea, 
the creatures in the field. All of creation rejoices at the Lord's reign and at his judgment. Creation looks forward to his return, and so should I. Okay, so, to sum this up. We live in a time where God's salvation has come. That's the message of the incarnation. That's the message of Christmas. His salvation has come. But we live in a time, and I, heard it, I read it described this way. We live in a time of salvation now, but not yet. That just captures my thoughts. Salvation has come now, but not yet. We look for the fulfillment of his judgment when he comes again, when Jesus comes again, as he promised to. It should be said of us, now but not yet. So I live in the meantime. What am I to do as I look at the edge of a new year? What am I to do in the meantime, I'm going to tell you this way. If you watch the news or read the paper like I do, we have a tendency, and it happened in the last election cycle, to just wring our hands. You know what the Bible said? My answer, the way I'm to orient my life, is not to wring my hands. My answer is to say, the Lord reigns. God bless you. It is so good to see you. I'll see you next week.